You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. So I was just in Vienna with my husband, Terry, and we were running around town and having a really great time. And there's this amazing system of trams that go all over the city of Vienna. Trams and, and an U-Bahn, they have a subway. But they have these trams that just can take you anywhere and everywhere that you need to go. Um, there's two things I want to share with you about the trams. First, everywhere we went, Terry called them trammies. Like, we're going to jump on a trammy. And I kept worried that we would be glittered by transportation activists if he kept that up. The second thing was how inexpensive riding the trams there is it's 365 euros to buy a year-long pass to ride the trams and the U-Bahn and the S-Bahn and the regional railroad system all over Vienna. That's a buck a day. Here in Seattle, it costs 250 or 275 to ride the bus one way. So five or six bucks to go round trip on the bus uh, in a day. In Vienna and Austria, this beautiful system of trams and U-Bahns, anywhere you want to go all over the region – a buck a day, basically, a euro a day. And it is this way because socialism, also because direct democracy, because one man, one vote, because they don't have really an anti-democratic system in the ways that we do, where, for instance, we have this thing called the Senate, where every state gets two senators. California, which has 40 million residents, 40 million citizens in California, two senators. South Dakota, 850,000 Residents, two senators, just the same as California. The Senate is really this anti democratic institution that gives small states and rural voters uh, a bigger say in the direction of the country and our policies than they deserve, than any sort of representative democracy would normally and typically allow. And this really does distort American politics uh, in huge and consequential ways. We don't really have an urban party, right? The Democrats should be the party of urban America. But the Democrats every four years, particularly, they run away from urban America because the Republicans have been so effective in making urban like liberal a hate term. Urban means chaos and thugs in hoodies and – Black people on welfare and urban means bad things. Urban means riots and danger and muggings and we should all be against urban and oppose urban policy. That's what the Republicans have managed to do with urban. Urban is really almost entirely used as racist code, which is ironic when you look at maps, uh, electoral maps after presidential elections, when we start carving the country up into blue states and red states because there really is no such thing as – a blue state. When you look at the vote broken out by district, by voting district, by precinct as opposed to broken out state by state, there are red states with big blue cities in them. So the stronger, more powerful, more organized a city is, the likelier that city is to tip the whole fucking state into the Democratic column, right? Seattle makes Washington a blue state. Washington, when you look at the vote by precinct, when you look at one of those maps, it's almost all red. But those red areas are very sparsely populated. And so the power of a big blue city like Seattle tips Washington into the blue state column. 
allows us to have things like democratic presidents. So the Senate is effectively kind of an anti-democratic institution, overweighs uh, rural votes, gives more weight to voters in South Dakota than voters get in California. The House is no better than the Senate. The House is supposed to be more representative of the people, more of a democratic institution. And yet gerrymandering has resulted in Democrats getting more votes than Republicans in 2012 and 2014 and yet Republicans having a majority in the Senate. More people vote for Democrats and yet – Thanks to gerrymandering, Republicans have more seats in the House, not the Senate, in the House. It's maddening. It's maddening. Uh, Between gerrymandering, uh, screwing the House and screwing urban voters and the Senate being exactly what it is and it has always been, screwing urban areas and urban voters and more populous states, we're barely a democracy. And now comes uh, a very underreported story and probably not what you expected me to talk about at the beginning of the show this week, not the week that the – Duggar scandal is still flowing, not the week that my old college roommate Rick Santorum declared that he was joining the Republican race for the nomination for the White House in 2016. Hey, Rick, how you doing? Remember, we redefined Santorum. We also redefined Rick years ago. Rick means to remove with your tongue, the R from remove, the ick from lick. Rick, to remove with your tongue, that makes Rick Santorum a sentence. Those are probably what you expected me to talk about at the top of the show today. But this is really what I'm obsessed with and what I'm worried about and what urbanists and lefties and progressives better get worried about because this is going to fuck us. I'm just going to read the lead from the New York Times story headlined, Supreme Court agrees to settle meaning of one person, one vote. This is the same Supreme Court, mind you, that looked at the Voting Rights Act and decided that we didn't need this Voting Rights Act anymore because racism isn't a thing in the United States anymore and no one's trying to stop anybody from voting anymore. And then, of course, that's exactly what came to pass. They scrapped the Voting Rights Act and Republicans who hadn't been shot, who had already been pushing these Voter registration and voter ID laws that serve only to disenfranchise people. They rushed in and enacted all of these things in the wake of the Supreme Court doing away with the Voting Rights Act because we didn't need it anymore because no one was trying to stop anybody from voting anymore except for the Republican Party. Right? That same Supreme Court that gutted the Voting Rights Act is taking up the meaning of one person, one vote. New York Times. The Supreme Court agreed on Tuesday last week to hear a case that will answer a long-contested question about a bedrock principle of the American political system, the meaning of one person, one vote. The court's ruling, expected in 2016, could be immensely consequential should the court agree with the two Texas voters who brought the case. Of course, they're from fucking Texas. Of course. Does anything good come out of Texas ever? Should the court agree with the two Texas voters who brought the case, its ruling would shift political power from the cities to rural areas, a move that would benefit Republicans. The court has never resolved, the New York Times goes on, whether voting districts should have the same number of people or the same number of eligible voters. Counting all people amplifies the voting power of places with large numbers of residents who cannot vote legally, including immigrants who are here legally but not citizens, illegal immigrants, children and prisoners. Those places tend to be urban and tend to vote democratic. So the Supreme Court as currently constituted, has a conservative majority and they have just taken up a case that could result in further empowering rural voters at the expense of urban voters. If they 
agree with these two Texas voters, if the Supreme Court rules in their favor, our system, which is currently so non-representative of the will of the people that it could barely be counted as democratic, is going to get – no one's talking about this. going to get worse, right? This will be a disaster for urban America. This will be a disaster for the cities. This will be a disaster – for the places that manage to tip states into the blue column, probably won't affect presidential elections too severely. This will take what looks like perhaps a, people have been speculating a multi-decade lock on the House for the Republicans and turn it into a never-ending lock on the House for the Republicans. This will also make almost all state legislatures lock for Republicans. Maybe we'll still have a Democratic president every once in a while. Rattling around the White House, vetoing the worst of it. Maybe we'll still have a Democratic governor every once in a while in a state. Rattling around the state governor's residence, vetoing what he can. But legislatively, we will be fucked. It's fun to talk about Rick Santorum. It's fun to talk about the new definition of Rick and the new old definition of Santorum. Not so fun to talk about the Duggar scandal, remembering that little girls were violated. Interesting to talk about the Denny Hastert scandal. It appears that he was guilty of duggery himself, may have been guilty of duggery himself, but this is the real scandal, the ongoing gutting of our democracy, the right-wing Republican plot to seize total power, to create a lock for themselves on power between Citizens United and gutting the Voting Rights Act and Koch brothers and their billions and Sheldon Adelstein and now this, I'm worried and you should be worried too. And we should all be paying attention to this on top of all the other things we're paying attention to. We should be paying attention to this case before the Supreme Court. All right, coming up on today's show, Jason Schmidt, author of A List of Things That Did Not Kill Me. Uh, a new memoir about his adolescence. We uh, have a very long conversation, Jason and I, and it's on the micro edition, all of it today, plus your questions on the micro and magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast. Coming up. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old gay man. So I have two best friends. One is is a straight dude, and the other one is a straight woman. And uh, the two of us are pretty close. Uh, we grew up together, uh, went to high school together, and... Um, yeah, to this day, kind of hang out a lot. But there's kind of this sort of uh, flirty vibe that we have uh, with each other. We take each other out kind of jokingly on these kind of three-way dates um, all the time. Yeah, just kind of have this closer bond than we do with uh, with our larger context with friends. So I've kind of decided that I want to actually propose that we um, actually go through with having a threesome. I feel like there is this mutual sort of attraction throughout the three of us where there's an unrequited love for one other, for one other person and then an attraction to the, the third. So, for example, I'm really into my, my dude, like this guy, and he's into um, the, the girl in our friendship, and she's uh, into me. She's someone that, you know, we had dated in high school for a bit and was really disappointed when I came out to her. But at the end of the day, I also find them both really, really hot. So, yeah, I kind of just want to propose this sort of bisexual MMF sort of three-way I'm wondering if you think that's a good idea to bring it up and to ask them. And if we do go through with it, do you think just in general, if it's a bad idea for the fact that we are close, these aren't, you know, uh, strangers, uh, they themselves are not a couple. 
so I wouldn't be, you know, entering this, you know, into a, a three-way with people I wouldn't see again. Listening to your call reminded me of this postcard that was everywhere in the early 90s at every sort of gay bookstore and Hot Topic and weird little card shop. And it was just this this pen and ink drawing, this cartoon of uh, four people, a guy checking out a guy's ass. The guy whose ass he's checking out is checking out this girl's ass. That girl is checking out another girl's ass. And the girl the girl is checking out is checking out the gay guy's ass. And it was sort of this infinite loop of frustrated desire because none of this was going to happen for anybody because nobody was checking out somebody who was checking out them. You know, I think this is a bad idea. I think you're into him, he's into her, she's into you, maybe she's into him too, maybe he's into her, maybe they close that loop there. But you've known these two people since high school. You sound like you have a tremendously wonderful friendship, sort of a romantic friendship. And I think – and I am usually come down on the side of, hey, risk it. You know, no risk, no reward, no hitting on people, no awesome three-ways or crazy sex fantasies being realized – but it just seems like you're risking a lot here that this could queer, for lack of a better word, this could really queer this wonderful friendship. Uh, you know, sometimes there are negative fallouts from three ways. Sometimes people get their feelings hurt. Sometimes people have a hard time being with someone that they had a three way with for a good long time if it went really badly and somebody's feelings were hurt or somebody accidentally hurt somebody else's feelings and they feel really terrible about it. So you describe a relationship of support and, uh, and dependence and not in a bad way. Like you rely on these two. They're your closest and oldest friends and you're going to have a three way with them and you're going to propose a three way with them. And who knows? Maybe there's gasoline all over the floor and both of them feel the same way and nobody's nutted up and ovaed up and just thrown it out there and this joking about how you guys go on dates and everything is everybody hinting and everybody sort of hanging back waiting for one of the other of you to light the match. Or maybe it's just not supposed to happen. And again, you know, you could risk it, but a whole bunch of planets have to be perfectly aligned for this thing to work. It can't just be that you think this is a good idea. But that he thinks it's a good idea and that she thinks it's a good idea and that you're all attracted to everybody involved enough for this three-way to work. And if he's straight, are you going to settle for just being able to watch him fuck her without being able to touch him? Or are you hoping against hope he's heteroflexible enough? You're going to have to heteroflexible enough to touch you or be touched by you or sucked by you or fuck you or whatever it is that you're hoping for. You're going to have to hash all that out in advance and that's a lot of unpacking to get to what for most gay men is a hard thing to find, which is a three-way. It sounds like you have a wonderful friendship. Adding sex after 15 years could really complicate that friendship, could potentially end that friendship. So I would tiptoe carefully through this minefield if you must hit on these guys. If you must address this, if you can't live with yourself, if you know 40 years from now you'll be thinking, oh, if only I had done it, if only I had risked it, if only I hadn't listened to that savage guy, this is what you do. Don't say, let's do this. I want to do this. Say, have you guys ever thought about this? Have you guys ever thought about the fact that, you know, we joke about dating and triadism almost, and we've been hanging out for 15 years, you know, never once junior year of high school, drunken, like rolling around groping, nothing's ever happened. Have you guys ever thought about it and just put it out there in that semi-neutral way. Have you guys ever thought about it? And then see what they say. 
And if they both react with yuck faces and yuck emojis playing across their faces, then you know that you should back the fuck up and take your dick and your fantasies out of the room and go find some nice boys, go find a nice gay couple to have that three-way with. Hi, Dan. I'm a new listener. So I have been a best friend with my guy friend for about almost five years. I would say he's like my best friend and it's all good. Of course, we're definitely close. He is our the most sexual friend. So everyone knows him as he's very sexual towards others and it's very open and he's welcome to anything. I feel recently, and I guess it has started since we started to become friends, that because we're close, he, when we go out, he's been acting super coupley as though he is my boyfriend outside. He does the same inside, but definitely more outside. Um, and it was fine when we started to become friends initially, but then it just seems to be getting more and more intense. I am a virgin, and he sometimes jokes about being like, oh, when you lose your virginity, then we should just have sex. And make jokes like that. At first, I'm taking it as like, oh, it's a funny joke. Sure, haha, sarcastic. But it seems like the more often he says it, and not super frequent, it is once in a while, seems like he is serious about it. But on the other hand, he definitely flip-flops as far as being coupley. He just says, oh, well, we are just not actually a couple because I'm just not sexually attracted to you. And I kind of feel uncomfortable about it because it's going from him saying, let's just have sex one after, I just don't want to be your first, to going, I'm I'm not sexually attracted to you. And it is on and off. And I'm kind of confused as to what he actually means by it. And I don't know whether he's meaning as if I'm just not sexually attracted to you now because you're sexually experienced because he is and that the day I lose it, then that's when that sexual attraction could turn on. I don't necessarily like him like that, but it is kind of a weird feeling. And I just, I'm not sure how to handle going forward, especially because he's very acting like my boyfriend out in public. And it's to the point where everyone around us is wondering if we're a couple, but he's throwing me mixed messages and I don't know how to handle it. There's no mixed message here. There's one message, loud and clear and unmistakable, and the message is this, the message from him. I am an asshole, okay? He is playing games with you, playing head games. Maybe he's a pickup artist shitbag who's nagging you or he's just employing the nagging pickup artist strategy. He's shredding your sense of self-esteem. He's using you. Maybe he's the kind of guy who likes to make it look to the world like he can just be shitty to a woman and she will follow him around like a puppy dog. And maybe he wants to be perceived as to have all these crazy women he's having sex with and then all these women he has on tenterhooks, you included, who appear to be his girlfriend but not because he's just that charismatic and attractive that he can string a girl along, say shitty things to her, play head games with her, and she's just going to keep coming back for more because isn't he amazing? Isn't he awesome? You say you're confused as to what he actually means by I would fuck you if you weren't a virgin or I would fuck you if I was actually sexually attracted to you. There's nothing to be confused about. Again. Back to that unmixed message. 
He's an asshole. Nothing to be confused about. Stop hanging out with him. When he pretends that you're his girlfriend or treats you in a way that makes you feel like you're being presented in public as his girlfriend if you insist on continuing to hang out with this asshole, turn to him and say, knock it the fuck off. I am not your goddamn girlfriend. You do not have the right to claim me in public as if I'm your fucking girlfriend. I'm not your goddamn girlfriend. Knock it the fuck off, you asshole. And when he says he's not sexually attracted to you, you say, fuck you. And like that's irrelevant. If you are friends, whether he wants to put his dick in you is completely irrelevant. And that he would toss that out there says that at least in his mind, I don't know what's going on in your mind, but at least in his mind, that's what you're there for ultimately. That's what you're interested in, that you are chasing after him in the hopes that one day he will shove his magic penis in you. And so he's going to say, yes, no, maybe so sometime. Ah, my magic dick, you'll get it. Because he thinks that's what's keeping you coming to him. If that's what's keeping you coming to him, if that is the basis of your friendship, hope one day for his magic dick, it's not much of a goddamn friendship. And he's a goddamn asshole. And you should stop fucking hanging out with him. Go hang out with other guys, better guys. Go hang out with guys who don't play games. Go hang out with a guy who might want to fuck you and not just play games with your head. Find a guy who might want to play games in your panties. They are out there, if indeed you want those games to be played. But this guy, however nice and charming and charismatic he might be, however much of a friend he might pretend to be from time to time, he's just keeping you around to stick a knife in you every once in a while. Not his magic dick, but a knife. Uh, Not a literal knife, but a figurative knife. He's just sticking that in you to hurt you because he's one of those guys, apparently, judging him by his actions and just by what you've shared with us in this one call – He's one of those guys whose self-esteem rises when he destroys some innocent woman's self-esteem. That there's something about being cruel to you that makes him feel better about himself. Don't enable that kind of misogynistic shit. Don't hang out with him. Don't take it. Go find other better friends, including potentially your first serious boyfriend. Hi, Dan. I feel like this is kind of like a first world problem are pretty light on the scale of questions you get, but uh, I'm a 27-year-old guy, go to school uh, down in Florida, and I started seeing this 20-year-old girl. I met her at a a tennis club. I'm just wondering uh, what I can do to sort of fire up, I guess, fire up our sex life. Uh, It's like, I guess she's kind of young, and so the best way to describe it is just kind of like, meh, you know, like I'm doing all the legwork, and uh, she's only been having sex for a year, so I mean, I, I think it's just she's She's nervous and and it takes time to come around, but I'm just wondering if there's any anything besides just quote unquote more repetitions you know to uh to hit that sexual tipping point, so to speak. I kind of feel bad because sometimes you don't really know if she's into it or you know she's just kind of laying there and you don't really get much back, whereas you know sex is like clapping, you know it takes two. Your prescription kind of got a laugh here from the tech savvy at risk youth when you say maybe we just need more repetitions, more reps. Like it's a gym or she's a gym and if just pump out some more curls, everything will kick into place. Um, Here's what I think you should do for your girlfriend. I think you should get her a copy of Debbie Herbenick's terrific book, Because It Feels Good, A Woman's Guide to Sexual Pleasure and Satisfaction. And not give it to her in the sense – and don't say this to her when you give it to her like you're doing sex wrong and something's not working here. But to say to her, you seem tense and inhibited and I want you to feel free with me to 
have sexual agency and desire and, and go for what you want. And asterisks, what she wants ultimately may not be you. She may just be laying there and not very engaged because you're not actually someone that works for her sexually. You're, she's not actually sexually attracted to you. That's a possibility, but that's not a certainty because the culture – and if you're a listener to the podcast, you've heard me say this before, the culture puts this enormous zap on young women's heads. And a lot of young women fall for this and, and internalize it, that they're not allowed to have sexual agency, that they're not allowed to have sexual desire, that good girls don't want to have sex, and that she may be laying there afraid to really share with you uh, what it is she wants, what it is she thinks about, what it is that turns her on for fear that you will react negatively, for fear that you will slut shame her. You say you, she's been sexually active for a year. Maybe in that year before you came along, she was with some terrible, bad, awful guy who shut her down and judged her and shamed her. And now she's afraid of opening up or she was with guys like that before she became sexually active, right? Or maybe she witnessed that happening to her friends or her sisters or peers were people who, you know, women who went for it, who were very open about their desire, their agency, spooked, timid young men, and then were punished for it, were shamed for it. And she doesn't feel safe, period. And that comes out with you she, as if she doesn't feel safe with you and maybe she has no cause to feel unsafe with you because you would be very welcoming of her desire, of her expression of sexual agency. But she doesn't know that until you tell her. As a general rule though, if somebody is just laying there letting you do things to them, stop doing things to them. You want to err on the side of not just doing things to someone who is gritting their teeth, laying there and taking it because the odds that you're doing something to that person that they're not enjoying are really high in those moments. You need a positive feedback loop so that you can be a good non-traumatizing and setting non-traumatizing as the bar is to set the bar very low, a good non-traumatizing sex partner. So instead of just climbing on top of her and doing your thing, Lay beside her and talk to her and draw her out and ask her what she wants to do and be intimate and physical without it driving toward your penis going into her. Just have it be open-ended and free and loving and supportive and see what that draws out of her. Get her comfortable. Take, you know, take sex off the table for a little while. Just set aside penis and vagina. Say you'd like to masturbate together. Say you'd like to do oral, go down on her. Tell her, say to her, you want to do things that turn her on and maybe she's so blocked she doesn't know what those things are, but you want to find them together. At the outset though, first move, I think handing her a copy of Because It Feels Good by frequent guest on the Lovecast and in Savage Love, Debbie Herbenick, would be a very good place to start. Second move, stop climbing on top of her and doing your thing while she lays there miserable. I promise you, when you climb on top of somebody and they lay there doing nothing, they're miserable. They're either miserable because the things you're doing to them are making them miserable or they're miserable because they're even as they're enjoying whatever it is you're doing, they feel miserable about not being able to share the things that they would like to do, not being able to express their enjoyment even in the things that you're doing with them, that even that can take something that otherwise feels good and otherwise is what they want and make it into a miserable experience. Because they're so blocked, so sex-shamed, so slut-shamed, so shut down. So your job, if you really want to help your girlfriend, is to draw her out and stop climbing on top of her until you've accomplished that. Hey, Dan. I am a 24-year-old 
female um, in Colorado, and I just kind of have this dilemma that I seem to run into every time I hang out with a guy. I hang out with guys just like I hang out with girls with the intention of being their friends, and 90% of the time, the guys always fall for me, and I don't know what I'm doing to make this happen, and it's really frustrating, and it's like, I know it's not a bad problem, but it's like none of these guys I'm interested in, and they're super interested in me, and they get really, really, really pissed off when I'm not interested back in them in that way, and I just want to hang out and be friends, and then they don't talk to me anymore. And that kind of sucks because I keep losing friends that way, and I'd really like for that to change. So do you have any advice for me? So either you have just drawn the short straw over and over and over again where you keep initiating these friendships uh, as you see them with guys who are after you sexually and you can't perceive that until it's too late somehow and they get really angry when the truth comes out and they find out that you're not interested in them in that way, in a way that they thought or assumed that you were interested in them and they get really angry and this is by no means anything I say from here on is to excuse them blowing up at you or being ragey or angry or entitled when they find out you're not interested in them. That's part of life. We find out all the time that people that we might want to be with sexually, romantically are not into us. And it is on each of us as individuals to take that with grace and to back up out of the room or recalibrate friendships and expectations based on that new information. Nobody has a right to explode at anybody when they find out that that person is not interested in them sexually or romantically. That said, there's something about your interactions with men versus your interactions with women that if it is the case that this inevitably and invariably happens with each new male friend that you make, right, that maybe you have – maybe you're playing a role in this. Maybe there's a way that you interact with men, young males, differently. Maybe you are unconsciously or subconsciously – giving off some sort of flirty vibe because that is perhaps what's expected of you, perhaps what the culture has convinced you're supposed to do, the way you're supposed to interact with men and is being misinterpreted by all of these asshole guys that you continue to encounter. I am not blaming you for this. I'm just saying to you that you might want to go to your female friends and say, this is a pattern and this is a problem. Have you, what am I doing? What have you, what do you perceive that I'm doing differently with the guys in our social circles that we're meeting versus the girls in the social circles that we're meeting. Because when I interact with girls, no girls think I want to fuck them and no girls are running from me who are not bi or lesbian because they're afraid I'm hitting on them. But all of these guys, one after the other, when they find out that I'm only interested in them as friends, they seem to think that I was interested in them perhaps as a lover all along. Am I playing any part in that or am I just continually drawing the short straw? over and over and over again and then listen to their feedback because you may be giving off some signal, some vibe. You may be friendly flirting with guys in a way that is being misinterpreted that you could recalibrate, dial back, that you could figure out how to interact with these guys in the same way that you interact with women when you establish those friendships, friendships that are not being misinterpreted. Or maybe it's not you. It's just something for you to think about. Like, is there something about the subconsciously or unconsciously that you are doing that is creating these false expectations and hopes in these guys that when they're dashed, they react like spoiled 
dicky entitled boys or are you drawing the short straw over and over and over again? And it could be that, you know, you're at that stage of life. You're a young woman where you're going to meet a lot of people for the first time in their lives who are out there trying to get boyfriends, girlfriends, dick, pussy, whatever they want. And they're really going for it. And everybody they meet is a potential whatever. And that churn of desire plus expectation plus the sudden onset of opportunity can bring out the worst in a lot of people. So it's entirely possible that you have interacted with a bunch of boys who were entitled and assholey and preferring of potential friendship was misinterpreted by their testosterone and semen soaked judgment. Totally possible. Also possible. The other stuff I unpacked for you already. So just think about both as possibilities. Uh, and maybe you can unpick this lock and have to deal with less entitled asshole boys blowing up at you in the future. And I want to degender this. I'm going to zoom out for a second. We've all seen this and not just girls doing this to boys. I'm from Gayland. I come to you from the land of the faggots. And I know guys who can't make friends without somehow relying on flirting without somehow trying to leverage their desirability to get the friendship that they really want. And so I've seen this in men who get miffed and hurt all the time because they keep having these experiences where guys that they were making friends with thought that they were hitting on them. And as the third party disinterested observer, they do do that. They, I, I know these guys who they think they're just being friendly, but to an outside party, it sure looks like you're trying to get into that person's pants or you sure looks like you're inviting their romantic or sexual attentions and I think it's subconscious and I think it can be thoughtless and I think it can be a complicating factor. But sometimes people, particularly very attractive people, will lean on that power of attractiveness and leverage it, sometimes without being aware that that's what they're doing. And I know guys who do it, right? And so I think – so it's not about girl. It's not about boys and girls. nothing about shaming you around gender. nothing about anything there. And – you just need to go to your friends and say, is that what I'm doing? Am I doing what some of Dan Savage's gay fag friends are doing? Where when I want, I'm being friendly, but it's flirty, friendly and being misinterpreted. And I need to, you have to help me like walk that back because the consequences of that are unpleasant because I'm constantly having to deal with this stream of hurt and upset guys like some of Dan Savage's gay friends who do this thing and it's annoying. And so you just invite feedback from your friends in the same way some of my friends have invited feedback from me about this very same problem. My friends with dicks don't want this to be about the dreaded prick tease label, right? I'm not calling you a prick tease. And I'm not calling you a prick tease by saying I'm not calling you a prick tease either. I'm just saying that sometimes people unintentionally will arouse the unrealistic expectations of others, of people they've just met because they want to be their friends. And it's a lever. It's a, it's a place you can go unconsciously and quickly to establish that connection that you hope for friendship and they hope for sex ship because your rollout, your initial approach is indeed a flirty one. That's potentially what's going on here. Talk to your friends. Hey, Dan, love the show, longtime fan. I've got a question for you that I'm hoping you can field, which I've tried to Google, and it's one of these things you just can't Google because all you get is a bunch of noise and 
believe me, I've tried. So I'm hoping you can solve this little mystery for me. So as sometimes happens when one is searching porn on the web, you see a thumbnail of a video and you go like, wait, wait, what, what? And you click on it and you end up seeing something that like, you know, maybe isn't your thing, but is like illuminating or weird or you know, whatever. Not, I'm, there's nothing sexually that I'm offended by, but one day I'm doing this thing and I see a video of a fellow with another fellow's arm inside him up to the shoulder. And I'm wondering, my question is, where does the arm go? I'm, I'm not offended by this at all. I mean, these guys are clearly having a great time. So, like, power to them. But I just, it feels, it, these are not big bottoms or small pops. So, it looks for all the world like they should be, like, the top should be holding the pump's heart in his hand. And I'm wondering how that works. Is the arm, like, bent at almost 180 degrees? Is there some trick to it? Are they, like, sneaking their way up the ballot physiologically? How is this working? Because I'm really, really curious. Baby, baby. This is all I could think while I listened to your question. Where did his arm go? Please don't let his watch slip off up by my throat. You know, I think it's in the intestines somewhere. They're 25, 30 feet of intestines. Presumably, uh, it's all in the intestines. Or maybe it's in Narnia. Maybe fist fucking bottoms are magic wardrobes that when you put your arm through them, it's just coming out in Narnia and you're shaking hands with random trolls and talking Jesus lions. I don't know. Uh, fisting is not my specialty. There are some fisters out there who are good friends of mine. There are also some fisters out there who have called me fist phobic because I've said that just because you can get a, a whole arm into your ass doesn't mean you should put a whole arm into your ass. But that's just me fisting videos. As you can tell, I think clearly from the discomfort and squickiness that's coming across in my voice. When I see those fisting videos, I, me, the great and powerful Dawes Savage, I have to look away because I don't want to see that busted open butthole and I worry about fingernail length and whether the guy took his watch off. Not that anybody wears watches anymore. I guess whether the guy put his iPhone down before he put his hand in there. So where does it go? Into the guy. That would be my guess. Not through the magic butt wardrobe into gay ass Narnia, but into the guy somewhere. And maybe they are moving internal organs around and I'm going to have to go lie in a dark room for about 45 minutes with a towel over my eyes after answering your question. And after that, I will put out some emails. Maybe we can line up a guest expert on fisting who can tell us why you would want to put a whole arm in your ass. I can understand maybe the wrist, up to the wrist, up to the bore. Maybe I could understand that maybe, but why a whole arm up to the shoulder and uh, tell us exactly where those things go. So – Look forward to a future show with a fisting expert to unpack this. Ew. Or maybe you are a fisting expert out there in the audience and you are listening right now and there is an arm in your ass and you would like to climb off that arm long enough to pick up your phone or retrieve your phone if it was lost somewhere inside your gay butt wardrobe Narnia and give us a call and let us know where the arm go. Baby, baby, where does his arm go? Hi, Dan and Tech Savvy at Risk Pals. I am 23 years old, I'll be 24, and I have a question about childhood trauma. 
So growing up, my uh, mother was pretty neglectful, physically abusive, um, but also sexually abusive growing up. Uh, And we're no longer in contact anymore. But I recently begun, well, I don't know, my first really serious relationship going on five years. And my boyfriend doesn't know. The only person who knows is my brother and the therapist that I've seen. So I guess, what is my responsibility to tell him? Because it's not really something that affects my life now. And as far as I see it, it's kind of behind me. But at the same time, I feel like I'm keeping a secret. Some stuff down the line, too, because we're serious. Like, she's never never going to, like, be at a commitment ceremony. She's never going to, like, I'm never going to see her again, ever, basically. So um, that's kind of a question as far as, like, why she's not in my life. But, uh it's weird to explain to his family. But anyway, any feedback you have about this would be great. We're going to tag team this one. Joining me in the studio here in Seattle, Jason Schmidt. He's a Seattle-based author and memoirist. His first book was published by FSG in January of this year. It's called A List of Things That Didn't Kill Me, a memoir by Jason Schmidt. I just finished it uh, on a vacation that I was on. Um, it's a it's a big book. It's a, it's a thick book. It's not the kind of book you take with you on vacation, and I tend to travel really light. I read the first chapter and I carried this book to Chicago, New York and Vienna and back. <laughs> it is amazing and heartbreaking. And But first, nice to meet you. Thank you. Um, nice to meet you as well. It's tremendous achievement and I actually wanted you to come in and tackle this question with me because it seems like you might have a perspective on this caller's question. A little bit. When the question started and, and, and she was talking about, you know, childhood abuse and whether or not she had a responsibility to disclose it, I thought, oh, okay, that's, well, that's one sort of thing that I'm familiar with. But I've never, uh, in my close personal relationships, I've, I've talked about my background sort of compulsively. Uh, I, I used to have a roommate who described it as like a coping mechanism that I had that things, sort of everything that popped into my head was just kind of shooting out of my mouth. Okay. So let's back up for a second because what the book is about is your relationship with your father. Yes. And it was an abusive relationship. Yes. And the book details, just so searingly honest and not just that there's a lot of like display in our culture of, of negative experiences and that doesn't always add up to literature. This is as a piece of writing, it's just so gobsmackingly beautiful, but it does detail and unpack Mm. your relationship with your father who was abusive and drug addicted and deranged. I I think for much of your childhood Mm -hmm. and was that a difficult thing to put down and on paper? Was it a difficult thing to write? No, weirdly enough. Uh, there were parts of the book that were extremely difficult to write, but most of them had to do with me and my failings. Uh, talking about my dad, I mean, I, I spent really a lot of time in my 20s thinking about him and sort of the role that he played in my life and what he meant and trying to sort of attack this question of who he was uh, because I started to become aware at some point that I didn't really know my dad very well, that I'd never had a chance to know him as a person. You never had an adult relationship with your father. He died when you were a senior in high school? Yeah, he died. He died. Well, no, actually when I, when I first started my first year of college, I started, I started college uh, uh, the month after I turned 17 and he died that uh, he died that that January um, after I turned 17. And the reason I thought this was a question that you might be able to tackle mm. is 
you know, that question of disclosure, mm-hmm. you've written a memoir about this relationship and about right. your upbringing, about your father. You've now disclosed it to everybody yeah. on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> but in your relationships prior to the decision to write this and mm-hmm. then the actual writing of it, which is two entirely different things. A lot of people right. out there decide to write, not that as many people who actually sit down and do the work. Right. The years in between the relationship with your father, the writing of this book, when you were in a relationship with someone, when you were making new friends or uh, having a girlfriend or um, embarking on a new relationship, did you disclose this stuff? Is it something that you felt you had to for that person to understand who you were? And what would you advise this caller to do? I disclosed – I did disclose it to people, though I went through a period of time where I didn't – I was intentionally not in any relationships because I didn't feel like I was capable of maintaining them. When I was 19, I stopped dating altogether for about four years um, because I just didn't feel like it was fair <laughs> to have people having to deal with me and the condition I was in emotionally at that point. Uh, so before that, before then, most people knew because they had known me while it was going on. So I didn't need to disclose it. And I took a four year break. And when I started dating again, I did, I did tell people and I, I, the trick for me at that point was trying to find a way to talk about it that wasn't laying responsibility off on people or trying to sound too melodramatic, but I wanted, you know, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it's about letting people know who you are and, I felt like even if it wasn't in the front of my brain, that it was going to be present in a lot of my reactions, that there are echoes of you know, your childhood that just follow you down through your adult life. And you know, I mean, my dad was gone. I hadn't interacted with him. But even to this day, you know, more than 20 years later, he's the central relationship of my life. I mean, he – Tell us about your father so people understand what we're dancing around. My dad was, you know, a baby boomer. He was born in 1950 to very sort of leave it to beaverish conservative parents in Southern California. And he grew up in that environment. And when he became an adolescent, I think he knew who he was and he was gay and he was closeted. And, you know, I think his family knew who he was and they reacted really negative, negatively to him because of that. And so when, you know, out of his three brothers, he was the one, the youngest, but he was also the one who was like the most disaffected and the most involved in, you know, sort of counterculture and ran off and went to concerts and did drugs and had a lot of sex when his brothers were not like that at all. You know, and then in his early 20s, in sort of a last ditch effort to be normal, uh, him and my mom got married and they had me and that didn't work out. That that was not a great strategy for them. Uh, going through the motions of being normal was not a good way for them to be normal. It's they they were they weren't what people then considered normal, and so uh, the relationship fell apart pretty quickly. And I ended up with my dad, and we were very very poor, and we moved around a lot. And my dad did a lot of drugs, and he sold a lot of drugs, and. We just sort of lived like gypsies. And so I didn't form relationships with other people. We moved so often I didn't have a lot of long-term friends. And that meant that my dad was the central relationship in my life pretty much until he died. You know, he was, he was kind of my religion. I mean, it was, it was, he was the only thing in my life that I could rely on. He was the only person who was constantly there. Reading your book, there's this famous photograph of – a child being removed from a broken home Mm -hmm. and it's a girl and Mm -hmm. it's in the arms of uh, the social workers and the police are there and the girl is reaching back toward her parents sobbing with her broken arm. 
yeah. reaching. You can see that her arm is broken and she is reaching back for her parents. And as I was reading your book, that image, your allegiance for your father, your that bond, despite all of the abuse, that image just kept coming to me again and again as I read your book. And it was just gutting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear other people react to him. I, I'm often surprised by the range of reactions because when I wrote it down, it felt like it was pretty, you know, I felt like I was conveying sort of my image of it. I go back and forth about how I feel about how he treated me. I mean, the, 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 like the image that you're describing of, of, you know, reaching back with a broken arm, it's like there were also some things that he did for me that other people's parents didn't that, you know, I'm so grateful for. The way he instructed me on kind of the morality of the outsider, you know, like there's there's something I describe in the book where I was I was staying with my grandparents up north and and they were taking me to you know Bible Day Camp and and they were playing at Bible Day Camp they were playing Smear the Queer and you know I I I told my dad what we were doing and he and he gave me this like really thought out moral response to that you know like sort of sort of almost philosophical, you know, like almost sort of in the discipline of ethics of mm -hmm. what was implied by what they were doing. And I knew of so few other kids back then who got sort of these honest intellectual responses to these, you know, to just sort of the day-to-day -day minutia of life. These cultural default settings around bias that are just so shot through the culture, you're not perceiving them as a child, you're just ingesting them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a really good way of describing it because he was such an outsider. He was, he made a huge effort and I think he was, I mean, you know, I guess modestly, I hope he was successful in, in getting it through to me. And it was, it, it was a huge gift to me uh, as a child and later in life to be able to sort of step outside everybody else's frame of reference. And so like as bad as he was in a lot of ways, you know, as sort of abusive as he could be and, and as hard to be around as he could be, I, I, I think of him partly as this, as this invaluable moral instructor. And it, it colors, I think my feeling about, uh, about a lot of the things that he did and a lot of the things that he said and a lot of his failings. I feel like we should dispatch with the call quickly. Yeah. You would recommend that she disclose so people know that that she's with her story, if not 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 to present herself as damaged or fragile, but as the person that she is. Yeah, absolutely. Five years is a good long relationship, and if you're really thinking about a lifelong relationship, there are going to be moments when these things are going to come up. You know, it's like, well, if you ever think about having kids. If you're, I mean, particularly if you ever think about having kids, your childhood is going to matter in how you think about that and how those questions come up. She's cut her mother out of her life who's still mm -hmm. alive. If your father was still alive, would you have had to do the same thing? I think probably. I, 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 don't, I don't think that there was any way that, that I could have lived with my dad in the same space I was. I don't, I don't, I think it would have been. And yet you still live in the same space. <laughs> I do. You still, the, the book mostly takes place on Capitol Hill in Seattle. Yeah. And we're sitting on Capitol in Seattle. You still live on Capitol Hill in Seattle. Um, you live not that far from the high school that you went to, that you write a, a great deal about in the book. Yeah. Was there something about staying here that was healing for you? Did you ever, you know, reading this book, I would think that the reaction as an adult would be to get as far away from everything that reminded me of my childhood as I possibly could. But you've obviously had a very different, you know, there's my dad and there's my culture. Uh, and this is, this is something that's always been a little bit hard to nail down because I, I remember I, I, when I was 
in college, I had a creative writing professor and we were talking about, I, I, she hooked me up with Sarah Schulman and we were talking about queer literature and sort of being culturally queer. And it's like, well, okay, I'm straight, but I was raised in gay culture. In the early 90s, back when the back when the Neptune was still a repertory theater, I stumbled into this Gary Oldman retrospective and, and saw Prick Up Your Ears, which I had never seen before. And I felt this like enormous startling wave of nostalgia mm-hmm. for that 1970s you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, underground queer, culture. underground queer culture, a queer sensibility for created by those tremendous social pressures, almost to a, a diamond like quality. Yeah. It, yeah. Very cutting, very sharp because it's the only way you could survive as a queer in the sixties, seventies and into the eighties, particularly as the epidemic took hold. Right. Uh, and it was, and it was just like, I miss it. You know, like I, I, that whole generation of men who, who, who died and took their culture with them. I miss it, you know, like in a way that I, I feel really acutely kind of all the time. Mm-hmm. And cause it was my culture growing up. It wasn't anybody else's. I didn't know anybody else. I didn't know any other kids who lived like I did. Um, there's a few sort of high profile right wing tools, um, <laughs> who are straight or by, in one case, uh, adults who had queer parents who were raised by gay or lesbian couples who now have monetized attacking marriage equality, attacking gay people and their right to parent. Oscar Lopez, I think is one. There's a dingbat woman here in Seattle whose name I can't recall right now. And I don't regard her with enough anything to Google her um, and throw her name around. She likes having her name thrown around. Reading your book, it was hard not to think, to, to wonder how you did not become, you know, you had the, you had a bad gay parent. I'm a gay parent. I'm, my kid goes to the same high school that you went to. I just gave him this book <laughs> to read. You don't. You didn't come away embittered at all about gay people or gay parenting. How? I, 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 you're made of stronger stuff than I am because I think if I had lived through what you'd lived through, I wouldn't like gay people. I wouldn't let myself be go into a room with a faggot ever. I, I chalk it up in in very large extent to that sort of moral education I was talking about. Um, that, that your father that gave my you. dad gave me because it it enabled me later on to parse, you know, to 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 differentiate between him and who he was and sort of what he was, and to see what had been done to him. Yeah, that then. Yeah, but he turned around and visited some of what had been done to him on you in a way that was just vicious and. Unfair and not something a child could comprehend. Well, no, maybe not as a small child, but as an adolescent, I had to take those questions on. Just, I guess what I was trying to get at was just hard for me to read your book, thinking, wondering how do you didn't turn out like these people who sure. are angry at their gay parents and out there trying to prevent other gay, punishing other gay people for the sins of their gay parents by right. being anti-gay activists and anti-gay marriage equality activists. Well, I mean, I think I think at least part of it. There's the moral education that my dad gave me that I mentioned earlier, but also there's uh, there was the incredible vibrancy of of the other gay men that I knew back then, and their moral determination and their fight in the face of overwhelming odds. And it's heartbreaking what the book takes you back to. I'm 50. I was there. I remember. Mm-hmm. I was a little older than you, um, and the cruelty of that moment, and you. You remind us, and I think even a lot of people in the gay community, you know, even people who lived through it, have just blanked it out, blotted it out. Um, those years in between 
the onset of the epidemic and the coming of support organizations, the Northwest AIDS Foundation and Chicken Supergate, right. it, it, there, were, there was a three or four year gap in between people beginning to drop dead and people beginning to do anything about it where even people who were gay and dying were abandoned by other gay people. Yeah. And the viciousness and terror of that moment and to live through that moment as a child – and then to to be able to recall it in this way uh, and not just create, you know, a terrible things happen to me memoir and shit show horror show memoir, right. but this this tremendously moving literature, this book, I, I, I don't have, the, I'm not a literary <laughs> critic. I don't have the words for this. If it was a sex act, I could be more eloquent in describing <laughs> it. I, I'm, I'm in awe of your talent. I'm in awe of this book and I want everyone listening to read this. And it's not just a book for gay people or gay parents or kids who had gay parents. It's, it's just tremendous. I hope you're getting a positive response out there in the world about it. We are, yeah. You know, it's funny for me. There were kind of two reasons to write the book, and one was to one was to sort of talk about you know childhoods that aren't talked about uh, to to sort of broaden the palette of what we think of as a childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one was to you know provide some opportunities and, and help some people. And uh, I mean, it's. In terms of how people are responding to it now, it's it's the part that makes me the happiest is actually probably the part that's out of the book. It's it's the the scholarship fund that we're doing, uh, and I that's that's a huge deal to me. Um, makes me incredibly happy in the response to that. We don't want to really we don't want to give away where the book goes or how it ends. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. But no it spoilers. does end with somebody stepping up for you, and the book now you are stepping up for others. It's a tremendous book. Thank you for coming in to Thank talk you. about it. Jason Schmidt, the book is a list of things that didn't kill me. Read the first chapter. I, I read the first chapter and thinking, I don't know if I'm going to read this book. I don't know if I can commit to it right now. I'm so busy. And I literally, like the cliche goes, I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I had to stay with it and and keep reading. And it wasn't a chore, even as harrowing as some passages were, because the writing is just so amazing. And I loved it. And I can't wait to see what you write next. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's been great. Dear Dan, I'm currently living in the Midwest and have a question about grad school for you. I have the opportunity to go for an MFA in acting at a school that is conservative, Christian, and but has a wonderful program um, with amazing teachers. Um, however, I am not covered under their anti-discrimination clause as a gay man or as a gay person. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, and if, like, as a you know, a self-respecting person, weighing the benefits between attending a program that can give you a great future and/or attending, but also attending a school that would go against and perhaps not protect you as a member of their community. I tried to call you back, uh, wasn't able to get you because I wanted to ask you if you were out of the closet already or if you intended to be out of the closet on this campus because that would, of course, potentially complicate your life in this drama program, award-winning theater program at a conservative Christian anti-gay school. I'm trying to wrap my head around this school that thinks it can have an award-winning drama program that is – free of queers. You can't really have theaters without queers. It's like having corn without cob or something. You just, you just can't have it, right? So they have this award-winning drama program, but they're shitty to, to, to queer people. 
And I don't know how that quite works. I do know, though, that this school with its award-winning drama program can't be the only school out there with an award-winning drama program. There are other schools. You probably have options beyond this school. And you could go someplace else. You might even want to go to a place where the drama program isn't as awesome, but you can be who you are. That said, if the school is – if the reason you're contemplating going to the school is they're offering you a big pile of money to go to the school, if it's a free ride on a scholarship and that package is too delicious, well, then maybe you should go to this school and to preserve your sense of self-respect – to preserve your self-esteem, you should regard it as a long-term revenge comedy where you're going to go to this school, you're going to get this awesome anti-gay pro-theater education at this school and then you're going to get out and you will avenge yourself upon this school for that terrible position that they put you in where you had no choice but to go there because of financial considerations but to go there meant to sort of swallow this awfulness once you get out, you can write letters, you can scream and yell, you can start a website for gay alumni of this school, you can return to the school as an openly gay person to speak, you can spend the rest of your adult life landing punches on this school where this anti-gay policy is concerned. If they reverse themselves, then you can give them a big hug. But until that time comes, you can not lash out, you can bash back. Let's call it. There's a school in um, Winnetka, Illinois. The name escapes me. Right-wing batshit fundy school that is just apoplectic about all the gay students who went there and they had an anti-gay policy and gay kids couldn't be out and they couldn't date and you could be expelled if they found out that you were gay. And gay kids keep going back there to talk about their experience of having gone to that school. And it just drives them crazy. So for the four years you're at this school in this award-winning drama program, the only one in the country, the four years you're there, they may drive you crazy a little bit. But you can return the favor once you graduate and make them pay for what they did to you just by being who you are once you get out. An openly gay graduate of the award-winning drama program at this shitty conservative Christian college. Hey, Dan. Um, I'm a heterosexual male, and I'm in a bit of a tricky situation. Uh, about six or seven years ago, I met a trans woman and became very good friends with her. Uh, we have a lot of mutual interests and enjoy spending time with each other. Uh, when we first met, she kind of put the moves on me, and she was still very much biologically male. She had a penis and was very much male, and I had to tell her that I am not attracted to the male form. Since then, uh, she has gone through hormone therapy, she has gone through surgery, and she is now, in my opinion, a very attractive woman. Um, and I would actually like to pick up a relationship with her, to, to start a relationship with her. But it seems like just going up to her and saying, hey, now that you're hot, do you want to go out, is a very superficial way to go about it. I really don't know how to proceed here, Dan. I'm really looking for some advice, and I hope you could have some for me. Presumably, your trans friend did all of this 
work, surgeries, hormone treatment, because she wanted to present as more typically feminine. She wanted to move through the world uh, with a, a more feminine presentation and wanted to receive the kind of attention from the world and from the men in that world that she would encounter uh, that that more sort of traditionally feminine presentation, which required a lot of time and effort and money on her part to create for herself, to bring her body and presentation to alignment with the person that she is and maybe always was. It seems to me that she went through all that effort so that she could, you know, guys like you would be more interested in and open to being with her, that that was at least on some level part of it for her. So I don't think that now that she's more obviously presenting as traditionally feminine in appearance that there's anything necessarily transphobic about you as a straight identified male being now more open to dating her. Indeed, that would seem to be in a way affirming of her trans identity in a double reverse backflip bank shot way, right? Not her trans identity, her identity. You know, when she was trans and out, but hadn't yet corrected for these secondary male sex characteristics that short-circuited her as a potential sex partner for you. Listen to me, vamp and, and ham and haw. I'm, I'm just telling you to talk to her, hit on her and see what she says. Maybe she's going to be so offended that when she had not yet gone on to hormones and had surgical interventions uh, gender confirmation surgeries. Uh, she may be resentful of the fact that at that time when she was out as a woman, uh, you weren't able to perceive her as the woman she was and she won't be able to let go of that and you can't get into her pants or up her skirt and won't ever be able to. But who knows? She obviously went to all of this effort for her own benefit and to change how she is perceived by the world and moves through the world and change the kind of reactions and reception she gets from everybody, including guys like you. So the fact that you're more open to dating her now may be in her eyes, a reward, not that you're the trophy, but a reward generally for the, for all the effort that she made to bring her appearance and her presentation into alignment with her true gender identity. So I just think you should go fucking hit on her. See what she says. Hey, Dan, and uh, the Tech Savvy at Risk um, I'm a 26-year-old straight female, and uh, about two years ago, I was raped and almost strangled to death, and, you know, I went through a lot of, of introspection and, and counseling, and I am in what you would, you know, what you call good working order, and I really am pretty much back to normal in every way, but... Over the weekend, I was hooking up with this guy that I really like, and and he put his hand on my neck, and it was just totally innocent and casual, and it wasn't anything scary, and I just I freaked out, and and just I was like shaking, and I felt like I couldn't breathe, and I'm just so sick of it, you know, because he felt really bad, and I'm just wondering, you know, what what can I do to make that kind of thing go away? You know, do I have to? disclose this to every guy that I want to hook up with because then you say, you know, don't do this. That's a trigger. And then that, you know, incites a conversation and that kind of kills the mood or do I now have to go back and tell this guy because I'm sure he's really freaked out. He felt really bad. 
then I feel like he's going to treat me different and I'm not different. It just sucks. I just feel like I've moved past this and yet it still keeps creeping its way up into my relationships. And I don't know, any advice you have, I would appreciate. First, I'm so sorry about what you were put through and what happened to you. And I'm so glad for you that you got the help and the counseling that you needed to tap the inner strength that was already there inside yourself to recover from this. That's, that's amazing. And you're amazing. Now onto the question of this trigger. And it seems like for once we get to use the word in an appropriate way, this trigger, this one place on your body that if somebody touches you, it just throws you back into that moment and it, it induces panic and a fear response and is just hyper unpleasant for you and and for the guy you know this guy the guy that did this who touched you there in that way without knowing it was a problem without any malice or intent to freak you out or traumatize you he feels awful okay if when someone touches you there you can sort of pull away a little bit and you know, take a moment to say, Hey, I just don't like to be touched there. And it's, but it's not a problem. And I know you didn't mean to upset me. Just, uh, you know, you can disclose in the moment of the actual offense and it not become a big derailing deal. It not, if it's not something that will shut you down for the rest of the night, if it's not something that will induce a panicked response. If it doesn't leave you in tears, if it doesn't really like derail everything, if it doesn't shut everything down, including you, I don't think you necessarily have to disclose in advance. Right. If it's something that you can handle gracefully and roll with in the moment while communicating the seriousness of not the offense, but the seriousness of that action and, and how potentially upsetting that is or actually upsetting that is for you, if you can throw that out there and go on, no need to disclose in advance. You can disclose on a case by case need to disclose basis. Somebody, their hand drifts to your throat. Their last girlfriend thought that was sexy to be caressed that way or gripped that way or whatever. If in that moment you can throw that out there, shut that down and move on, no need to disclose in advance. If, however, this is a landmine and will remain a landmine for a very long time where if anybody goes there, anybody touches that, anyone steps on that, there's going to be an explosion where you are devastated and they are – if they're a good and decent person, they are traumatized because – they didn't wish to visit that devastation and trauma upon you and they are – they feel terrible like this guy. Then you do need to disclose in advance. Then you need to say in advance before any physical intimacy is in the cards or in the offing or coming down the way. You don't have to walk them through everything that happened to you. You, you probably at that stage in the relationship will not have reached that every card on the table full sharing of all traumas stage. But you just need to say, you know, there's just one place you, you know, we're making out. We're going to like, here we are. Just one place you can't, don't ever put a hand on my neck. Like something happened a long time ago and it just is, it freaks me out. Don't do it. And if they ask for details, you say, you know, I'll tell you at some point. It's not that big a deal, even though it is a very huge deal. You can lie in that moment and say not a big deal just to head off a more difficult, potentially derailing conversation at that moment. But again, if it is a landmine, if it is something that – if someone touches it, a tripwire that is going to cause an explosion that devastates you and, and leaves them feeling awful, then you do need to warn them in advance lest they accidentally pull that trigger. And as with so many other things, it becomes a nice litmus test. 
if you disclose that and they take it well and, and they are respectful of it and they don't pry if it's not time yet for that kind of full disclosure, everything card on the table, it lets you know what kind of a person you're in the room with. It's a good way to figure out whether that's somebody you can feel safe with in the room, how they process that info and incorporate it into whatever it is you two are doing at that moment and how they roll with it. So you should regard it as that magic sorting hat that so many other things are. So many times, so often when we have something we want to disclose or we feel like we should disclose that we worry about the reaction, sometimes it's good to get to that reaction because it gives you a lot of information about the person that you're sharing that information with, information that is valuable, valuable to you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old woman from Texas, and I have a question about male breastfeeding. I just had a baby in March, and I've been lucky enough to produce two times the amount of milk as a normal woman. I had to buy a deep freezer to store all the extra, and I've almost half-filled it. My husband and I could use the extra cash, so I tried to sell some of it on this website, onlythebreast.com. I immediately received a long email from a guy who kept insisting that he's not a perv, but wanted to know if he could pay me to suckle my breast. I didn't respond, but when I looked into the website, I found many more ads from guys wanting the same thing. I'm not talking about the whole slew of guys who wanted breast milk for their workout regimen. These guys were claiming it was for a treatment for a medical condition and that they needed it straight from the source to relieve their anxiety or to receive the maximum health benefits. When I did even further research using Google, I found tons of websites proclaiming the vast health benefits of male breastfeeding, all written by men. Here's what I want to know. This is a kink, right? Is it the same as the adult baby fetish or is this something different? Why are these guys claiming that they have some serious health condition that only breast milk on tap can fix? Why not just admit that they get off on getting a mouthful of baby milk from the breast? It just seems a little dishonest to post an ad like that on a website that was originally intended for moms to sell breast milk to other moms who can't lactate. Apparently, it's so common that the website eventually created an ad category for it. Help me understand, Dan. Thanks. Sounds like you have a pretty good understanding of the issue uh, all by yourself. It may be related to adult baby play. I'm certain that there are guys out there into adult baby and women. There are some women out there into adult baby play for whom actually being suckled instead of having to use a bottle would be just a huge turn on. The only question uh, that's even really in your call, you've unpacked this. The, the gods of Google directed you in the right place. This is obviously kink, obviously fetish. Why are guys lying about it? Because the stigma attached to kinks of any sort are so huge. The stigma attached to kinks that overlap in any way with child things – adult baby things, you know, so many adult babies have to spend a great deal of time explaining that they're not actually attracted to children, that they fantasize about being children. That's what turns them on. They don't, they're not interested in children sexually. Is The stigma around that is just 10 times as great as the stigma around I have a pair of fuzzy pink handcuffs, which is stigmatized itself despite living in our post Fifty Shades of Grey universe. And yes, I still have not seen that movie. So the reason why these guys aren't just honest is because they're less likely to get a positive response. If they are honest and say, I want your breast milk because it makes my dick hard or I want to suckle from your breast because it turns me on, there are many women who might otherwise be inclined, naive women who might otherwise be inclined to meet the demand here to actually sell their breast milk or allow a guy to suckle if they think – that they're helping out somebody on a crazy paleo diet or somebody with a particular medical condition that is 
made up to justify, to rationalize the realization of this fetish and kink. You are not the target of that particular lie. Women who aren't very savvy about kink or sexuality or what men are like, they're the targets. So if I were you and this was my breast milk and these were my breasts, I might say to these guys, you don't have to bullshit me. I know this is about your kink. And if that's okay with you, if you might be willing to meet their needs, if not in person, if you don't want to be suckled by these guys, but you might be up for selling them some of your breast milk, go for it. You know, you have extra breast milk. If it's going to waste, if there isn't demand for it from mothers who need your breast milk for their infants and you want to make some respectful pervert with a PayPal account a very, very happy man, you have increased the amount of joy in the world by selling him your breast milk, and there's nothing wrong with that. Hi, this message just for the former gold star lesbian in the last episode of The Love Cast. I'm also a former gold star lesbian, now happily bisexual in the Bay Area, and I want you to know that it gets better for bisexuals, too. I also freaked out about how to tell guys and my queer friends that I was going to date men, not just fuck them, but date them. It isn't the same as it was when I came out 20 years ago. Almost all my lesbian friends said, oh, yeah, I've dated guys, or even I love having sex with guys. In fact, I met my now girlfriend when I was dating men exclusively. It didn't scare her off, and now I feel totally free to be myself in this relationship. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener here. I'm calling in regards to episode 448 with a guy who is volunteering at the prison near his home. I can tell you I'm retired law enforcement. This is setting him up for bad things to happen, uh, regardless of what intentions the inmate might have of just being friendly. This gentleman has let out too much of his private life for this inmate to know. It sets him up for blackmail. It does happen. It sets him up for being accused of any type of sexual harassment that an inmate can cause. And despite the nice intentions that might be there at the moment, I can tell you, having worked with inmates and with custodies for over 20 years, at some point, this guy is going to start getting more aggressive in what he wants. And he will use this guy's information, again, as a way to try to blackmail him and get him to possibly smuggle anything from cigarettes to drugs into the jail. I can tell you for the county that I worked with, it did happen, and these people were charged, and now they're in jail. So this guy needs to stop volunteering. He needs to go to the superiors in the jail, let them know what has happened. He needs to not accept any more letters from this inmate. And he needs to stop volunteering because it's just going to get worse. Hey, Dan. This is in reference to episode 448 about the young lady that was having issues um, dating gay men. I would just like to say I finally found a well-groomed, straight, heterosexual male. He's great. We shop, and he fucks really good. So definitely want to give her some hope. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 
888-253-2720. There's also a comment thread online attached to every show at www.savagelovecast.com where you can also subscribe to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. We are getting ready to do our One Minute Wonder show. We promise it to you. It's coming. If anybody out there has a question that you can ask in under a minute, 206-201-2720, your question can be a part of the One Minute Wonder show. But we bust through where we just run through as many questions in 45 minutes or 90 minutes as we possibly can. Hump, the country's biggest, best amateur porn film festival, is coming to Brooklyn. It's going to be at the White Hotel in Brooklyn on June 25th to help kick off their Pride Weekend celebrations. Go to humptour.com for information about when Hump is coming to you. Also, click on submit at humptour.com for information about making and submitting your amateur porn for the Hump Film Festival and Hump Tour. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Jason Schmidt on Twitter at J Wrote a Book. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth. Well, I'll be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.